This is The Coolest Show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level. Information, entertainment, education. Rev here, what got you covered as you hit your destination? Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. Hello everyone. Today's guests are incredible and you'll hear by the sound of my voice that I am not Reverend Lennox Yearwood, the host of The Coolest Show. I just happen to be Tamara Tolzo Laughlin and I'm really excited to be here with you today because we're going to talk to some really incredible women that you need to know. Our guests today on The Coolest Show are Tracy Lewis and Melanie Allen. There's a lot to say about them, but I'll start off first by talking about the moment we're in because we're always in a moment of a lot of tension, a lot of growth, and a lot of news. As an evolving movement, we began as a defenders of our basic human rights to live unmolested in resistance to toxic poison, to fight violent disinvestment and racist zoning. Black, indigenous, and all people of color have not always been public about the role of resources in relation to our work. The 17 principles of the environmental justice movement were developed by the movement itself and were followed up by the principles of working together, which did in fact speak to what it means to fundraise within and beyond our community in principle number eight. Since that time, the work of people and planet has often been tied to a moral narrative about struggle, irrepressible advocacy, and communities under threat. And that narrative has often been silent on the ways we resource the revolution. In today's conversation, we are recognizing that we don't have the luxury of separating our stories, our expertise, our data, our intellectual power, our humanity or moral standing from the work we do every day. In the climate decade, we're prepared to pull it all out on the field because we're literally losing ground to the climate crisis. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the ways and means, about people's money, how we build power, and how we do it with respect and not just for our suffering. I'm proud to bring today's guests to The Coolest Show because in their own way, each of them are defying the ways that we uh, talk about the narratives on how we govern, what we need, and how we get it done. Together, they represent innovation and finance as a defense to climate vulnerability, as infrastructure for community protection, and as watchdogs, the friendly kind, for inclusive resources and unprecedented dollars that flow into the environment to fight climate challenges. Welcome to our guests, Melanie Allen and Tracy Lewis. Melanie Allen is a co-director along with Aaron Rodgers of the High Fund for Climate and Gender Justice, a specialized intermediary launched in 2019 that raises money and makes grants to groups that are building power to address intersections of climate, gender, and racial justice in the United States, especially groups who've historically had lacks of access to funding, which is a really nice way of saying they've been excluded. More than 75% of the High Fund's grant money has been awarded to groups led by Black, Brown, Indigenous, Asian American, and Pacific Islander women. So Melanie is making change. She's a native of Greensboro, North Carolina, and currently resides in Durham, North Carolina. Melanie's co-chair of the Grantmakers for Southern Progress and serves on the board of the Environmental Grantmakers Association. Tracy Lewis is an incredible advocate, a swan, a black swan, if you know, you know, uh, and is policy counsel of the Climate and Energy Group at Public Citizen. 
Tracy advocates for financial regulators and legislators to address the financial risks associated with climate change. So all that money falling out of the government, she's watching it. Prior to this role, Tracy was a senior climate risk policy analyst, where she engaged members of Congress on climate policy while building legislative and research work in climate-related risk. That work would be really important to Justice 40. Additionally, Tracy was the policy director for the Maryland General Assembly, a very important delegate, uh, if you might, if you look that up, uh, where she contributed to legislative drafting and research for the office. Tracy is a member of the Climate and Community Project, where she works on state-based policy communications, policy solutions aimed at frontline communities. She also holds a Bachelor's of Art in English Lit from Spelman College and a Juris Doctorate with a concentration in European Union Law from the Vermont Law School. Welcome, ladies. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so happy to be here. I'm excited for the audience to dig into this conversation. We're calling it Money, Power, Respect because it's the key to life. I heard that. Sure that. So yes. uh, I would like you both to introduce yourselves by way of talking to the audience about why it matters to your community that the movement makes the connection between money and environment. And I'll ask Melanie to kick us off. Well, thank you again for, for having us tomorrow. And I'm just going to say, Tracy, it's an honor to be here with you. I'm fangirling a little bit because the work that you do is so vital and so important. And you're someone that I look to in this space um, who understands what's happening, how money is moving and how it must move for us to be able to, to make a difference and, and to see the transformation that we see. So it is an honor. And why money matters. Um, again, my name is Melanie Allen. Alongside my partner in purpose, Aaron Rogers, um, co-director of the High Forum for Climate and Gender Justice. And I always say that, you know, we talk about climate justice. I live in and I'm from North Carolina. Many call it the birthplace of environmental justice or the modern environmental justice movement. And we don't have a climate justice movement um, without environmental justice movement. And um, the way that we get to climate justice is because people have been telling us for generations that the way that we produce our consumer goods, get our energy and electricity is literally killing them. Um, that this economy, the economic system that um, our life runs on and that in many ways runs our lives um, has decided that, um, you know, there are places, there are people that are disposable. And because of that, they are breathing in dirty air. They are not able to have access to clean water. And what we've seen is that when folks were saying that and saying it loudly um, and putting their bodies on the line and we didn't listen and we didn't act um, then those problems that were really acute problems for some really vulnerable communities um, became uh, our problems in a way that we could not no longer deny. And so money and our economy is at the root of, kind of these systems that we're having to shift and transform. Um, when we think about environmental issues, this is not just, transforming, you know, something around the edges, it requires a transformation of our environmental system. Uh, how we think about money, how we think about money and relationship to uh, the communities and the environment surrounding it. But the other reason for our work and at the high fund we get to invest in, make grants to organizations living and people work, living and working on the front line every day. The other reason that money is so important is because these people have very powerful visions for their community what they can look like, what they should look like, how to solve the problems that you've been living with and dealing with um, for years and years and years. And many of them, you know, haven't had the resources, haven't had the baseline resources for their community to 
even have the basics from, you know, not flooding or flooding uh, two inches of rain not being a flooding event. Um, but beyond that, they have powerful, powerful visions of a future um, where everyone has access to basic things like housing and food, but also that help to solve our climate crisis um, more globally in ways that go well beyond their community. And so without resources, uh, first of all, it's difficult for them to get to those tables, to have the resources to get to those tables to shape the way that decisions are made. But then it's almost impossible, we've seen, to go from that shaping decisions to building brick by brick, um, this new reality that both they have a vision for, but also that we all deserve. Wow. So I hear you talking about providing resources which make solutions possible. Tracy, I'll, I'll toss it over to you and ask why <laughs> it matters to your community that the movement makes a connection between money and the environment. Well, thank you so much, Tamara. And Melanie, um, same here on the fangirling front, because uh, without the work that you're doing, um, orgs from frontline communities, it's so difficult for them to connect with big green orgs like Sierra Club or NRDC or even Public Citizen. You know, we all want so much to, to be in one accord, but it's difficult when one side of, of that equation does not have the, the money and to, to make that happen. So I'm so glad that you're here and doing that really incredible, important, incredibly important work. Um, so on my side of the equation, I, as you noted, um, policy council at Public Citizen based here in D.C. And it's really important um, for my community, so which, well, I'm kind of like of two communities, right? I'm, I'm a black person in this world, a uh, black okay. woman. And then That's I'm also, point. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I am also part of the, the larger um, climate community, um, particularly climate finance community, um, of which there are not a lot of black people in. Surprise. Exclamation point. Ping, ping. So, um, so it's really, oh man. You know, sometimes I, I just don't, I don't like to think about it because then it makes me sad. But then I'm here with you all and it reminds me that we're slowly making inroads. So, um, but well, hold, it's really hold important. On a there, Tracy. Oh, hold no. on a second there. Oh, yeah. Why does it make you sad? I, I think that's the key to the question about, you know, why does our community need to make the connection? Well, that's exactly it. I mean, Actually, I'll give you a perfect example. So I was really fortunate to guest lecture at Yale School of the Environment. And um, my colleague and the professor of that course said to me that he was he was sad to not see that he had any black students in his course on sustainable finance. And sustainable finance is not and should not just be about Western nations, most developed nations, it's actually something that every nation should be plugged into and therefore uh, uh, individual groups representing, you know, their, their communities because without money, these things that we need to get done don't get done. Without shifting money from investing in fossil fuels and reinvesting it in 
renewables um, and sustainable energy, we will not see the cha- any of the changes that we need to see. And, and already, how many reports have, have come out this week about how we're pretty much not even going to make 1.5 uh, degrees centigrade uh, limit to our climate. So, at, at but this I, point, I understand three reports this, have come out this week. Three. Okay, <laughs> is it three? Okay, I was like. At, at, at a certain point, I, I like had to just tune it out because I couldn't take it anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, what my my colleague noted about his course at you know top universities in the entire um, on the planet that that black students were not in sustainable finance because I I, I, I believe that that we believe and we have been told uh, I mean we as black people brown indigenous that there's not a place for us in finance. I mean, quite simply, I'll, I'll just speak about America. I, I listened to, the, I was on a um, Federal Reserve webinar about the banking system. And one of the speakers said that the American banking system was never conceived of to have black people participate in it because we were the collateral. We were the cash. And you cannot we were be- the capital. You, you right. cannot be the capital and participate in the capital at the same time. So that message is, has been received very loudly and clearly over uh, uh, many centuries. So it's not going to simply turn on a dime that all of a sudden we embrace it or are embraced by the finance community. Um, but that's actually why this work is really important. And, and again, Melanie, and, and tomorrow, I'm so grateful for uh, the things that you do to fund orgs. You know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. I know I'm going to have so many cliches today, so just All good. smack me down. This, uh, cliches just, are uh, how we remember things. It's just a form of storytelling. So I, I would say that true. what I'm hearing from the two of you already at the top of this conversation is that we are redefining our relationship to the system. So while whatever exactly. state capitalism is, we are no longer the negotiating capital. So so that's a powerful Preach. place to be in the world. Like, you heard it here first in late, 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 late stage? I don't know what stage you're in. Capitalism. <laughs> yes. Uh, we are no longer the capital. It's somehow connected to whatever stage of COVID this is. That's all I know for sure. Oi, um, babe, that's the truth. <laughs> so what, I, what I'll ask you next is, I'll ask you both is, in your experience with the harm, yesterday's harm, today's harm, tomorrow's harm, uh, your choice. Uh, under-resourced, com- what, are, what is the harm of not grappling with what you just talked about? So if we don't, in this moment, think about what has happened and what could happen, what's the harm of not making the connection between money and environment for the people you support? And I'll start with you, Melanie. Yeah, I mean, I'm feeling that question in my chest because it's dire. It truly is deadly. And, you know, I think this, I, I appreciate it so much because you asked yesterday, today and tomorrow, past, present, future, what is that harm? And so often when we're engaging, you know, with environmental justice issues and talking about, you know, cumulative impacts, the fact that, you know, so few communities and usually our communities, black communities, brown communities are the places where, you know, the factories, these all these polluting industries are cited and they're one on top of another. And they're like, Oh, it's not race. It's not intentional. We're here because the land is cheap. (laughs) Right. But actually like disinvestment, 
right, is what allows that land to be cheap, which is what allows them to keep using that same excuse and use it as if it's not racialized, as if, you know, we don't live in low-lying areas because this is the land that they didn't run us out from violently. Um, You know, this isn't the land that they redlined us into, right? So people get to make arguments and say, oh, no, this isn't racialized. This is just based on real estate markets that we know in the history of the United States are racialized. There's a racialized history, a history of policies that have, you know, um, put communities active up tightly in some places, you know, in these very, very prescribed areas where we could be, where we could live, where we could live, period, uh, fewer that we could even own property, right? And so now when we think of, you know, what the impacts are, um, because there's been disinvestment, those same neighborhoods where we're all bunched up together, we have communities that experience underbounding. And what that looks like is, you know, you look at a map, there are some communities I'm thinking about, like, Medellin, North Carolina, I'm calling my, my um, you know, my, my home areas out, where you see that there are counties that grow and grow, or towns or cities that grow and grow and grow. And then you look, and there are just these strange-looking areas that are cut out or surrounded. And so the places where they build infrastructure, you know, they'll grow literally all around, but then there are these black communities they don't have any access to sewer, don't have any access to water, don't have any access to things that we would consider basic infrastructure, right? That's what disinvestment looks like. Um, and let alone, you know, they don't have that that um, connection to that infrastructure that they pay tax dollars for, right? Because mm-hmm. they're often paying taxes, often doing other things, but those... Um, you know, the, those not even amenities, those basic resources aren't extended to them. But then they're also because of this history in low lying areas and on maybe septic tanks or something else. So when it floods, when it rains, you know, they're not only susceptible to, um, you know, having their septic overflow and having human waste, you know, floating in their areas or neighborhoods. But then also, you know, can't get on to these public systems um, that everyone else around them is able to access. And that's racialized. And so when we look at, you know, that's the harm today and yesterday. It has not changed more, but it is compounding harm because of that continued harm, because of that continued disinvestment. Um, industry can do all these things and say, oh, we're just here because the land is cheap. Not because, you know, we are, you know, targeting this type of community, but we feel those impacts. We know, you know, what does the data say? I think that like 56%, I forget, I don't want to quote out a statistic, but, you know, the likelihood yeah. that, you know, Black people are to to live beside a polluting industry is much higher than any other demographic in the United States. And that's deeply tied to race and place. Yeah. And to disinvestment. The whole, all of environmental racism makes the point that regardless of our social status, capital, or access to resources, uh, Black people are more likely to be harmed by environmental mm-hmm. legacy pollution, toxics, exposure, or just plain uh, violent disinvestment. So, so that's backed up in the history of these lands. Tracy, can we talk a little bit about what's the harm tomorrow of not making the connection between money and environment in your community? Wow. Because well, what you're doing today is seeding that work for tomorrow. So what I are you defending so. us from? Well, what I, what I hope that me, my uh, very wonderful colleagues at Public Citizen and within our larger coalition, 
um, as I, I mentioned, you know, generally they're, you know, green groups, um, some BIPOC uh, led groups like Acre, um, which, you know, is uh, just a wonderful opportunity uh, to grow this work. But what we're looking at, uh, you know, I can give a perfect example of uh, um, um, communities of color, frontline communities in Florida that were hard hit by Ian. So, and connecting that to some things that you mentioned, Melanie. So redlining, we know what that means uh, in terms of, of um, homeownership, renters. So I'll start with renters. People who are renters um, don't have the same type of coverage that homeowners have when it comes to insurance. Um, they, which means that if they lose um, their home or an apartment building or or um, even a, a mobile home, um, trying to find housing that is next to impossible because what's the other thing that's affected when uh, a major climate crisis hits your area? Your ability to work, your ability to get to work. Do you own a car even? Can you get to and from? <laughs> and if you did own a car, it's probably floated away somewhere. How will you replace it? Did you have enough money to pay the type of insurance that would get you another car? Um, and if you have an older car, they won't, won't replace it. They may give you money. What if you only get $2,000? What kind of car are you buying? Um, so th there's that. Um, if you are a black homeowner, um, we already know that you are more likely to have been put in a subprime mortgage. So it is um, a very cost burdensome to you. Um, it may leave you very cash poor and unable to uh, weather any financial disruptions again. Um, because you are black, you're going to live in a neighborhood that, as Melanie mentioned, has been uh, disinvested in. So the um, the value of your home is lower than it would be if it were in a white neighborhood. So um, we know studies have already shown that uh, when black homeowners file for assistance from FEMA, they are less likely to get it than white homeowners. And they have to suffer with um, the lack of repairs um, and, and all of that, what that means, um, uh, more damage to, to your home. Um, and then, of course, okay, say you want to move. Who are you going to sell your house to, right? It's got to be another black person because if you live in a majority black neighborhood, like most black people do, then um, the marketplace for your home is is um, a much, much narrow one. And even if you live in an integrated neighborhood as a black person, if the, the, if, if the buyer knows that you're black, um, you will get less money for your home. See the New York Times articles on this. So we, we look at every way um, uh, that people who have to navigate um, um, injury to their, their financial stability from uh, climate crises. Black, brown people, indigenous people as well, are the least likely to be able to overcome that. And again, it, it, is, it is racialized. So just to tie the bow on this, um, the work that um, I'm doing, part, part of 
that work is one really desperately trying to ensure that communities of color are part of this conversation. Um, we definitely need to continue to do more work on building capacity within those orgs to think about this more wonky work because quite frankly, um, frontline communities are dealing with life and death matters. Um, access to food, to housing. And so this may seem a little bit more attenuated, but in truth, it, this is right up there too, because if we cannot change the way that policymakers conceive of all of these things, right? It is, it is housing, it is transit, it is insurance, it is um, access to, to food, access to clean air, water, um, um, uh, infrastructure so that people aren't still using um, uh, outdoor toilets, right outside of Birmingham, like these things are, are just like inconceivable. So it's a lot of work that needs to be done to tie it all together. So I just, I hope I'm part of the solution and not part of the problem. And what I hear from both of you is that frankly, uh, you're trying to undo what the system is doing on schedule to black and brown people. So, so just, just want to flag, these are some dangerous women we're on a podcast with today because they are not just demystifying the work, but also undoing all the loose ends of white supremacist racist violence against our community that's embedded in every kind of policy and especially in our narrative around money. So this is a really powerful thing to try to talk about and to wrap our minds around. Melanie, given that framework, can you tell us why do we need what you're doing and why do we need it now? Yes. Um, you know, when I just heard Tracy speak and you summed that up so um, beautifully, Tamara, and we need this now is that the world is being rebuilt around us. Um, we are living in this moment where not only are we able to, you know, change things at the edges of the system, but the whole system is being rebuilt, redesigned. We're in this redesigned moment. And too often, you know, we are not a part of these conversations about how it's going to be redesigned, what it's going to be look, look like. And Tracy, I'm like, I'm, I don't think it's ever been more true that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Uh, when I sit in these conversations and these calls, the plans that people have for our communities, they're out there written, they're, you know, right. tested, they're ready to go. And so I'm like, this is the ringing of the alarm. And our, our folks know, our folks understand. Um, but the High Fund for Climate and Gender Justice, we are a regranting intermediary. And what that means is that we raise money, um, we, you know, go out meet with funders, with donors and say, hey, we know people who are doing incredible work. The work that we fund is in the U.S. South. Um, we're about 40% of pollution, right, is in these southern states, this region. And get less funding than any other region um, in the United States. And so we think about the amount of pollution, this being really where so much of the system is going to be rebuilt and reshaped um, and how little attention is coming to this area. And I'm saying attention in terms of investment, right? How many people are paying attention, but how many people are being intentional saying this is an opportunity for us to build and do things differently. Um, that is why the high fund exists. Um, we saw a need specifically in this region, but also there is this trend. Well, not even a trend. There was a long history 
right? In the philanthropic space, definitely in the great migration, but in the philanthropic space, there's this very long history of organizations that are led by people of color, you know, not having access to philanthropic dollars. If you have access, there are what I like to call trickle down dollars. So it's like, there's a strategy. We've already got our plan on how we're going to get there. Oh, we looked up and there are no people of color in our plan. Who can we give 10,000, 15,000, a relatively, very, very small amount of money um, comparatively to, to what they're giving overall, just so that they said they did, but not seeing it as a real part of their strategy. And the danger when people, particularly groups and communities down the front line, are not a part of the strategy or not resourced in the way that they need to be, is that we're losing out on this whole solution set born of folks who have lived intimately with these systems that we're trying to change and reshape. And their voices about what hasn't worked about those systems are not a part of that reshaping, but also their voices about different systems, like discarding this and dreaming something new are not a part of it. And then I think the byproduct that we've always seen is, and then these communities and people get either displaced, dumped on, or, you know, are bearing the other um, consequences. And so the high fund, our work is really important in this moment um, because we know that we need all hands on deck and that some of the most powerful movements for change and transformation in our country have come out of the U.S. South, have come out of particularly Black communities, Indigenous communities that are here in the U.S. South. And what we've seen is that they can do a lot with pennies on the climate dollar. We know that they can do even more when they're resourced appropriately. And so our goal, I talk, you know, to uh, my other friends in philanthropy, our goal is to bread them up. Like, how do we get those dollars there in ways that are more than just symbolic, but that actually fund them so that they know that we trust them, that it doesn't have to be paid, tied to, you know, these very specific outcomes that we prescribe, but actually we want to listen to you, co-create with you and understand what's possible based on your knowledge of where it is that you live, your knowledge of where it is, what can happen here. Um, but the other reason that it is so important is that we don't have time to waste. And we know that it's going to take changing of political systems. It's going to take changing cultural change to get us there. And so if we're just focused on parts per billion and don't understand the system, um, the culture, all oh, the water that we're all coming in while we're trying to make these changes, then we're being very short-sighted um, and we're not going to get the transformative change that, first of all, that we need, um, but it's necessary not just for these, to solve these climate challenges, but it's going to be necessary for these challenges of racial injustice, these challenges of gender injustice, and all these other inequities that are closely knit together um, that too often we like to think of in these very separate and siloed ways. But that's not how people live. And that's not how it works. And I just want to point out, Melanie, that your description of the amount of resources that go to Black, Indigenous, and all people of color-led organizations was generously described as a trickle. Uh, <laughs> I want to lift that up. Uh, we, we are in a moment where we already know 1.3% of philanthropic dollars goes to the community, so less than 2%. And if we look at studies like um, philanthropy, uh, PRE's latest, which points out that of those dollars, most of that money goes to pointing out that racism exists, not to do anything about it. So, so I can tell you, as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about this, that it's not just that we're not spending any money. The money we are spending is just on observation, not, not on systems change. So I, I'm really proud to be in this conversation with you as you talk about all the ways that you are 
separating the uh, the ways of exclusion from the means of capital and giving us access to all of those things, uh, not nearly at the scale that we need, but 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 at a faster rate than it would happen on its own, which would be not at all. And I just want to say one more thing because I get to stand here and be in conversation with you brilliant and beautiful folks and talk about our work, but it is very, very collaborative. We are at our core participatory organization. We have advisory boards of frontline leaders that help shape our strategy that did everything from choosing the name and colors um, to telling us what our grant making would look like. And so I think I'm there, Aaron's there. We have a brilliant staff that is strategic and wonderful and so much of what we know, so much of what we've been able to do and so much of how we exist in the world is because we're in deep, deep relationship and deeply guided by an amazing um, community of frontline advisors. And that is also one of the important things of being in an actual real relationship and not just a transactional kind of funding, funding relationship with folks that are doing the work. Tracy, as we move into the irreversible parts of the climate crisis, uh, it's becoming clear, you talked about it in, in the reports, just one of the three released this week by uh, the UNEP, the United Nations Environmental Program, flagged that we've only managed to reduce projected greenhouse gases by 1%. Like all this work about the earth healing itself and the, all, the, all the Twitter, uh, the tweets about it. Uh, all, like if, if only tweeting uh, lowered our emissions. Uh, if only. <laughs> uh, we've managed with all the effort we've put in, knowing what we know, to only make enough commitments to reduce the harm we're about to cause by only 1%. In this context of big talk and slow walk, why does it matter who's in the U.S. Treasury or who oversees the Securities and Exchange Commission for people who are feeling it, are experiencing it, and aren't being listened to? Well, you know, one, this is why voting matters because the, the people who make the decision about who's in charge um, they're in place because people have to vote for them. So I just want to, my nonpartisan uh, uh, reminder here is for people to please vote. And if you live in a state where you can register and vote the same day, do that. Uh, uh, I think the website's like vote.org. You can find out anything you need to know. Um, but so tied to that, um, you know, why does it matter who's, who's at the EPA, who's at Treasury, who's uh, at the SEC. Um, it most certainly would seem very, very attenuated. Like, how many people know who Gary Gensler is? I can guarantee to you 99% of them live in the DMV. <laughs> and the rest of the 1% is spread across the rest of the country. Um, and mostly yeah. his relatives. <laughs> Put that up. Go for it. You're just... You're just saying, that's all you're saying. But, um, you know, why, I'll tell you why it's important that, um, you know, folks know about uh, who's there and what they're doing, where they came from. Um, well, two things. On one hand, it's you like- only, You only get to go for it, Tracy. Okay. Well, one is representation matters, right? So having Michael Regan at EPA is- a um, night and day difference from having Scott Pruitt from Oklahoma who used the EPA as his piggy bank and buying old 
used up mattresses from the Trump hotel with EPA money. So I would just like to pause it or just say that Michael Regan is also from North Carolina. Indeed. Oh, well, he's your homie. Indeed. All right. Right on. Right on. <laughs> Tar Heel. Um, so yes, having, having him there, having Katanji Brown Jackson as on the Supreme court where she brought some real fire talking about what the real purpose of the 14th amendment is, which was not to be colorblind. It was to guarantee formerly enslaved black people citizenship. It's supposed to be Mm -hmm. equal citizenship. That is not what, uh, uh, the Scalia set, the Scalito, as I like to call Alito, (laughs) Um, and Roberts and Gorsuch and Bear- anyway, I'm about to go off on my. That's whole thing, a whole. But that's a whole different podcast. That's another pack podcast. Bring, bring me back for that one. We'll bring you back for pack the courts. Okay, but, but pack the so, courts. On, but you know, you know. So so having having people who are are drawn from uh, uh, areas that uh, of of work that have been traditionally excluded as being considered. Um, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, Kataji Brown Jackson, for example, I think she was a, you know, um, um, uh, was she a public defender? Don't, you know, don't let me misquote, but uh, I'm just saying, I'll use Michael Regan, that he came from uh, North Carolina doing environmentally focused work. So, and now naturally around finance, it's a little harder to find uh, people of color doing that work. So that's why I had to rely on talking about other agencies. But um, Gary Gensler is important because he believes that scope three disclosures should be in the SEC's climate related risk rule. Proposed rule. And just, just um, for the audience, scope three is everything you do that makes the planet a hot, dirty, uh, death cult. Go on. <laughs> not the hot, dirty death cult. Well, let's yes. not pretend it's going to be clean. It's not, it it, it can, cannot. So Janet Yellen is actually has been floated that she will be leaving uh, Treasury, and I think it would be really amazing to see someone who is not a white person to lead Treasury. Now, I will just say on a quick side note that um, when President Biden nominated Saleh Amarova to lead the OCC, um, she was met with an incredible fire hose of disinformation and lies and scurrilous, scandalous attacks against her um, as, an, as an immigrant, as uh, an, an Asian woman. Um, someone born in the former Soviet republics. It was like absolutely unprecedented uh, to see those attacks. But then right away, we saw the almost the same thing happen to Lisa Cook, who was nominated to be the first black woman on the Federal Reserve. And she was attacked because um, she's been a professor her entire life as an adult. The bulk of her economic research has centered on black people and women and that is heresy blasphemy in the uh the world of 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 economics the idea of thinking about this we know that jerome powell who is the current federal reserve 
chairman who's only a lawyer, does not have a degree in economics, just so people know this. Um, his current policy pursuit on bringing down inflation is to increase unemployment. One thing that we know is that where whatever level white unemployment is at, black unemployment is always twice or more. So really his prescription for reducing inflation in America is to make more black people unemployed. So again, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Jerome Powell wants to make sure that black people and working people writ large are not only disempowered, but broken, broke and broken. So that's why it is really important uh, uh, who is in charge and leads a certain uh, uh, agencies. Wow. Wants us to be broke and broken. That is a quote uh, that, that we need to keep moving in whatever is left of social media after this interview. Uh, so I'll ask you both. Um, can, I'm going to ask you a trick question because we, we know the answer and it'll be quick. Can you be both an organizer, a philanthropist, and a real revolutionary? Absolutely. Gotta be. <laughs> Tracy. You know, I really did. I, I actually wrestled with this and I I, I had uh, music lyrics in my head. I had... Uh, oh, which ones? This is a um, cultural, this is a culturally oh. <laughs> relevant community. So well, it, hit it. Well, you know, I mean, the first thing that came to me actually was Gil Scott Heron's, you know, the revolution shall not be televised. It shall not, you know, all the things that it, it cannot be. But ultimately the revolution has to be whatever we do to undo past wrongs. So, um, and so for us, black people have always had to be everything unto ourselves because we have been denied access in every single way. So. Um, if we have to wear three hats, well, then you're just a lazy good for nothing. You only got three jobs. So <laughs> you, you, you are not, you would, you would not be a part of the Island family where three jobs is the best kind of job that you can exactly. have in so, culturally, cultural, cultural competency. I'm with you. And like, I have a job today that I did not know existed until maybe 10 years ago. Like, so I was well in my career. Right. When I think about philanthropy, like, I am a fish fry philanthropy, bake sale philanthropy. And so when I think about, right. um, you know, like the way I went to college, right, was our church scholarship, bake sale, fish fry, sororities that have like these whatever where you raise and get scholarships. Like that is the philanthropic world, right, that yeah. I and so many of us grew up in. And so much of that was around like, what does it take to uplift our people, to get our people where they need to be in the rooms that they need to be in so that they can and so that we must like do more for our broader community. And so to me, it is like an extension of that. Like it is not big key philanthropy um, that I'm thinking about when I answer this question. It is that I know that we come from people who have always found a way to make it enough. That's right. Found enough to grow the pie. And, you know, found enough to create what it is that we need for ourselves. And so for me, that is like a resounding yes, we have to be. And I'm just going to name like my grandmother, Sarah, like these names, like these are the philanthropists that I think of and that we draw from um, as we're doing our work. Yeah, I I would say passing the hat 
<laughs> was what well, like I feel like bake sales and fish fries are for people who have both bread and fish. <laughs> so I just want to point out that That's the story. So the, the universal you going to mm-hmm. college, sweetie. Uh, we're gonna make you stand up in front of the church and tell everybody something nice. like, who you're mm-hmm. going to, mm-hmm. and then we're gonna pass the hat. <laughs> so like, so so I'm really excited that you raised that that like the the largest form of of charitable giving that exists actually happens amongst people with the least money because they give so much. Every single um, uh, a, a party we have or celebration we have is actually a transfer of wealth in the culture. So you have a child or whether, however the child comes into your family and you celebrate that, there's a big party and people give you diapers and people give you That's it. And that all of that is philanthropy. When you go off to college, when somebody dies, somebody comes over and cleans your house because you can't pick your face up to deal with the harm that all of the work we're doing is trying to slow the pace up. And so I do think it's really powerful to flag this. And since we're talking about all the different levels of giving and how that money is regulated and not regulated in the informal economy, can both of you talk a little bit about just how much money, capital, credit, you think we actually need to win on climate. And don't worry, we're not going to hold it against you. It's just your best. Like, give us some social math. What's the scale that we're talking about for in the work that you need to see regulated, Tracy, and in the money that you need to see move from what I call just resource redistribution into the hands of folks with answers who are both invisible and essential? I'll go first, only because I'm going to say uh, we need all the money. All of it. You heard that? I mean, just very briefly, um, and I know there are, are particular figures out there that I cannot even pull out of my memory banks, but what's what's needed, right, is money, resources that uh, not only take care of people where they are right now, whatever state they're in. So if you are, I'll, I'll pull up that community you mentioned in Alabama, Melanie, that, that lacks um, uh, plumbing, indoor plumbing and um, uh, sewer systems. The bare bones American basics, right? We're, we're not in, in uh, a nation that has never had these things. That is accepted. So people who live in areas like that they most certainly cannot overcome uh, if there's any type of, of flooding or, or um, you know, they're living in, in, in mobile homes, so their home could be swept away by, by rising waters. So, so not only do we have to help people where, where they are, to, to borrow from Booker T, they have to cast their buckets down where they are, but they also have to dig another well get some new buckets because they're probably gonna have to leave where they are right now as well. So um, in Maryland, for folks who live uh, along the Chesapeake, the live, you know, oystermen and the, the women who um, uh, pick crabs, right, who are primarily black women, um, what are they going to do? Where are they going to work? What kind of skills do they currently have? Um, what new skills do they need? Coal workers in West Virginia who are actually strangely super resistant to getting uh, uh, training and other things. I hope that's changing now. So, again, helping people where they are now, where we can 
somewhat accurately predict with science, where they're going to be with sea level rise, with drought, with, um, um, you know, everything bad happening. So whatever, whatever money is needed to do that, that's what's going to have to be done because otherwise we can live in Florida and Texas where they are led by two men who pretend that none of this is happening. And the people who live there are going to be so harmed as we saw in that, that terrible cold snap. Um, was that earlier this year, last year, people died because they refused to connect to the national grid. They charge so much money for the access to energy that people can't afford it. It's thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, it makes no sense, but it makes, but it makes all the sense because there's a small group of people growing very rich off of the human suffering of others. So that's what kind of money's going to be needed. Like we've been working on this report and I've been reading a lot of reports on a lot of numbers. And so, you know, I, I agree with you. Like we need all the money and we have this number from climate policy initiative that the U S every year between now and 2050 needs $250 billion in clean energy investment for the level of transformation. And so, you know, in many ways, you know, we'll talk a lot about where y'all had an amazing show where y'all talked about the process of the IRA, how that happened, what we got, what we didn't got, and on whose backs it was gotten, right? Yeah, 200. So you all should all listen to that. But 250 billion, and what we are celebrating, like, this isn't even a down payment. And that's what we need every single year. And yeah, and so just thinking like philanthropic capital has never been that size in any single year, right? In the US, I think climate philanthropy, when we started, when we were doing our research, was like $2 billion in climate change. I'm talking in numbers that I like are still uncomfortable to me talking, but this is what we need, right? $2 billion, less than 2% of that was going to uh, organizations that would say they're doing climate justice or environmental justice work. Um, and so, like, we need all the philanthropic capital. We need all this public capital. But it also has to be private capital. And there's going to be, have to be different ways because it can't just be a dump. But it's got to be in ways that they're, we're creating an engine where this money is, like, yeah, building up something new over time. And so I just wanted to add that context that it's not just the dollars, but it is how are those dollars coming and what are they able to do? How are they able to turn around and actually, I mean, we know, right? Uh, the value of dollars being able to turn around and stay in our community um, to be able to actually build something up, but something that's sustainable, something that will not just carry us, you know, I don't know. I feel like we're in a, in a context now or living in a situation, you know, I don't know. My people used to talk about, you got more, more month than you got check. And I'm like, Ooh, we, we got, we get to January one is how far we can get with, you know, the amount of money that we're investing in climate and clean energy now. And we need to get all the way to the end of the year, every year. That is powerful. And I can tell you that we are in a really powerful moment in this conversation, because as you have talked about, we are restructuring everything. It will take everyone and we need all the money that exists. Like in conversations, when we talked about the Inflation Reduction Act, this was what was underneath it, what you just raised, that that it isn't that this isn't money, but that it isn't nearly enough money in the conversation to make the kind of change it would take to move people out of harm's way 
for today, much less for today and tomorrow. I'm going to ask you both, um, Melanie, in your answer, you actually said something that I want to dig in on a little bit, which is that you as a person who's a practitioner in this space, who's working to demystify how money works to people who has intentionally been kept from understanding what this medium does, separating our own labor from it and watching it work in a system we didn't build, right? So let's talk a little bit about that discomfort. Uh, why do you feel uncomfortable talking about money in this way? And what does it do to create power to give our community language to talk about money? Because as I started off the podcast, I was mentioning that we are in a moment where we are throwing off the shackles of neocolonialism and its foreparent colonialism and saying, we're not going to keep the secret of supremacy anymore. And one of those secrets was money. So can I ask you both uh, to talk a little bit about why it's important for us to develop language, work on systems, and talk about money in public? My God, that's a, that's a powerful, powerful question. Um, one, I think it has been such a part of our culture. Um, and I think some of the reasons Tracy brought up early on in the conversation, one, because we were considered capital. That's right. But also, too, because often we don't have enough. And for, well, not for some reason, but in our capitalist economic society, the shame of not having enough money is on the person who doesn't have and not on the system that creates masses of us, the majority of us who do not have what we need to survive in what we would call, you know, a thriving situation day to day, right? So that's shame that we hold personally, even though it should be system shame, like tell us that the system isn't working and needs to be remade. Um, and so I think too often, you know, we don't talk about what we need. We don't talk about what it takes. And we are accustomed to asking for or accepting crumbs because we're not even saying out loud, um, you know, what it is that we have, a little bit that we do have. And those bigger numbers, it's comfortable. I mean, it, it's just uncomfortable to say. I think about it in talking about like workers and salaries, right? People have shame around sharing their salaries. Um, either because they think, oh, wow, okay, I'm making less than everyone else. But there's on the flip side, people feel like, oh, I'm making more. People aren't going to think I'm worth this much money. That Right? And we have this feeling of unworthiness often when it comes to thinking um, about resources. We've been conditioned and disinvested in so that we have these um, sayings, right, that we can do more with less. And no, we shouldn't have to do more with less. That's right. It takes more to do more. If not, then you're giving up something else, another resource. That's your health. That's your time. And we see that over and over again, right? And our losing leaders in our community. Um, yeah. And I, I could talk about this for a very long time. But also, if we're not transparent about, you know, what it takes, about the dollars, about the true calculus, then there are all these incalculable costs. And so often it's our lives. And so when I think of the balance sheet of corporations that say, oh, you know, this is their profit and this is what it costs. And those costs never include environmental costs to the communities around them that bear those burdens. Um, and I think about it when I, you know, when we talk about what it is that we deserve, I look at grantee applications and I see that folks, you know, 
Of course I didn't ask you for a hundred thousand dollars. Of course I didn't ask you like for two hundred thousand dollars because no one's ever given us that level of money before. Um, because people think that they should have to make it work and what that looks like in our work is then you have all these organizations led by black and brown people who are getting these little grants that everyone can try it out and say that they're funding, but don't have enough to pay one person's salary. And that is shameful. That's right. Um, and that's part of the work that I've done is, is working to, to transform. Tracy, I'll, I'll throw it to you and say, you know, what's the value of being less precious about resources and talking about it in public? Man, I mean, that was, that was very, that was very heavy duty, Melanie, because it makes me, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to be at an organization that is well-funded, but it also is not a BIPOC led org. So, um, so I know it, it it means to have a good salary and, and health insurance for myself so that I can think freely. Um, because when I worked at places where uh, my value certainly felt less um, important, that um, I was far, as just as an individual, I was far more focused on how I was going to make it than being able to have the luxury of space and time to think about how I can help other people. So I think that is one very serious impact of, of doing work where you, you feel that your constituency is devalued. And then you as, as a black person or a person of color just feel devalued because you're representing a constituency that is devalued. Right. So if I know that all the people who I'm working for and I, I care about um, are, are scratching and surviving for some, you know, uh, some spare change from somebody, some rich person's couch. And, and it, like you said, it's not even enough to pay uh, a single salary. What, what does that, I mean, what does that mean? Like psychologically as, as people doing the work, you feel it just as much as, as they feel it. So, um, you know, tomorrow, the work that you're doing as, as president and CEO, um, of, uh, philanthropic or is one changing your one, just your presence as a black woman changing the calculus. Secondly, making everyone um, look better is uh, my parents' fault, but carry on. <laughs> It's the dimples. Genetic. It's, it's definitely the dimples. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, so rep- representation matters because you're also now bringing with you everything that you learn and experience, the things that we learned uh, together when we were in law school in Vermont, which is what the second most white state in, in uh, this, this country. But it depends um, on whether the trees are considered white. I don't know. Go on. Go on. Cows. Are there more cows than people? The syrup is better than Canada. I said it. It's just kind of true. And Vermont does cut rock. That's all I have to say. But uh, I had to slip that in there. Um, uh, so, yes, it is It is within our, our cultural lore that if they give us the worst part of the, the pig, then we're going to make it the most tasty thing. So I think it's hard for it's hard to separate that because that is, you know, uh, truly woven in our DNA. Like 
when when they banned they said black people couldn't learn how to read we we learned secretly and and became fluent and wrote wrote books and traveled or phyllis wheatley and frederick Douglass, even though we were born in the worst of circumstances so i know yes we draw strength from from that that knowledge and and and, and being connected to that but um I would also like us to not have to feel that way all the time. I do draw strength from it because I know that my ancestors were drawn from sterner stuff. They overcame when ev- everything seemed impossible. So so I know that we can do that. When we come together, we can do this. Um, but should... <laughs> to... to uh, to steal a line from Color Purple, I had to fight all my life. You know, I don't want to have to fight all my life. So uh, we got a lot. We have a lot to do. But I want to. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not daunted. I want to lift up that what you're both talking about is actually rebuilding the self-esteem of communities that face every kind of poverty. It's not just dollars and cents. Uh, scarcity and not just about how we meet our everyday needs, but just the ability to envision what the future is going to look like. We constantly live under threat and vulnerability and climate catastrophe, which isn't coming next week. It's already here. Uh, As folks, we are often asked to conflate our dignity and morality with being broke and righteous. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's really powerful to talk to two folks who, you know, I hate this word, are pioneers. I hate this word because it assumes that there weren't people before us who thought about this. I started the podcast talking about how in 1991, when the EJ principles were founded, there was a secondary document, which had a whole section in principle eight, which talked about our relationships, how we would raise money and how or bigger organizations as they grew would be required to support smaller organizations. And so this isn't something that's new to our conversation. It's just new to our culture around discussing how the work gets done. And both of you are really providing an insight on how not talking about it is another form of disability, a dysfunction that's been handed to us and that you're taking apart. So as I close us out, I just want to ask, um, what's the vision of the future that you are fighting for and how can people follow and support you? Powerful, powerful question. I mean, the vision of a future that I am fighting for is one where people have the space to dream and then to take those dreams and like turn them into possibilities and turn them into real tangible things um, that shape their, their lives day to day. Um, I've got like small dreams and big dreams and we just celebrated three years at the hot fund. So we have been around for exactly three years and we put out a report, but that meant that we look back this year in our third year, we put out $25 million in grants. Um, general operating support primarily to organizations that we, when we were founded, you know, basically people said they didn't exist. So the reason that, you know, only you know, people of color only make up five or however many percent of their portfolios because we can't find those groups. And so I think the fact that we exist, that we can say probably that number is $25 million on the ground. Um, to these organizations that are doing incredible work. And I could say, that's not even the trickle. Like that is nowhere near enough in our small region here in the South. Um, and that our vision is to be able to double that, not so that we can say big round numbers, 
But because, you know, I go to visit Houston, Texas, where people are, you know, living alongside like biggest of industries that like I've encountered and seen in my life. I am in North Carolina down in Sampson County and in Clinton, where folks are living next to hog waste and having to breathe that in and underwater on their mortgages because, you know, the way that this industry has grown up around them. Um, and so for me, it looks like not having to tell those stories to be able to speak of dreams and to speak of how we made them come true. I'm on Twitter. I'm Mel Alton. M-E-E-L-A-L-L underscore I-U. And so that's where you can find me. And you can also find me at hivefund.org. H-I-V-E-F-U-N-D dot O-R-G. So no connection with the Bayhive. Is that right? I mean, personally, I have a deep, deep connection with the Bayhive. Um, but we are an independent organization. Okay, just wanted to see if, you know, Beyonce wanted to make any connections to make that pot a little bit. I mean, Rihanna has already funded us, so Beyonce right. should come on, come on. Uh, if if Riri's funding Black people, you know it's a good investment. Uh, Tracy, <laughs> well, you talk wait, to us so- about the vision you have and how folks can follow you, learn from you, and support you because, uh, you know, the revolution must be resourced. We should probably start funding like that's true. This is true. Well, just to Melanie, I just have to say, you better work, 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 work. You got that Rihanna <laughs> money. Right on. That is so excellent. <laughs> so proud of you. <laughs> and I will say, as they like, it's a Claire Wagner Foundation. Rihanna's Claire Wagner right. Foundation. I, I love it. I love it. Oh, this that makes me so happy. Well, my my vision for the work that, that I'm doing around uh, climate, financial, regulatory work is that um, uh, we keep doing what we're doing, that we continue to bring in organizations that represent frontline communities, Justice 40 communities. Um, that's one of the things that's, that's very important to me because, you know, as Melody mentioned before, the communities that are, are most affected, that are completely left out of, of policy discussions and plans that are, have already been made ensures that we will keep getting more of, of what we've already seen. So um, I'm actually hopeful to be, you know, in, in um, better community with BIPOC-led orgs and doing this very wonky work um, to find funding for those orgs to you know, have one person that's, that's dedicated to um, climate finance and I think I would say the actually the most important thing to me is you know I've got to find another word besides building a pipeline because you know what uh, I, let, let me help you there it's an building element. a bench we're building an, an, eco- okay. an ecosystem of opportunity yes yeah. thank we're, you because okay. we're ending pipelines we're ending yes, pipelines. We I, I don't even want to use it in it is a casual mm-hmm. conversation so right I want to do and I want to be part of the cohort that helps or, and continues constructing this this ecosystem of of people who want to to do this work who are dedicated or probably doing something like it already but are not properly resourced i want the voices of of those most affected communities to to be heard um and not be an afterthought i want them to be funded um i don't want them to get crumbs or mm-hmm. as langston hughes said I don't want them sweeping crumbs from the table of joy. That's what I want to see. 
And you can find me on Elon Musk's Twitter. (laughs) I was waiting for somebody to say it. I have to, you know, you got to say it. I mean, it's literally at like midnight, it turned into a racist pumpkin. Um, (laughs) Child. Lewis Finreg twenty two. I'm sorry, at Lewis Finreg twenty two is my handle on Twitter. Um, uh, Citizen dot org is my organization, and really, um, again, I just urge people to please make sure if you live in a state where you can register and vote the same day, do that. If you're not already registered, please do so for the next election. And if you're registered, go vote. For yes. less, no, for non-lunatic uh, people who are trying to destroy <laughs> democracy, whoever they well, may be. Wow, you heard it. Here. <laughs> uh, yes. It has been a pleasure on behalf of the whole crew at the Coolest Show to bring you our guests, Tracy Lewis and Melanie Allen. I promised you this was going to be a powerful conversation. You heard it here first. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Have a good day. Thank everyone. you so much, tomorrow. I, Thank I, you, tomorrow. I cannot imagine that we could hold a conversation like this without women like you. I'm Tamara Tolzo Laughlin, your co-host of The Coolest Show. Thanks, everyone. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to repeat. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know. 